Welcome to Urban Puritano. On today's episode, we consider entrance into the church. In the present and ongoing cultural, political, and societal turmoil, what does it mean to find entrance into the church? Is what God accomplishes through the church according to a special calling or purpose? Is society crumbling because the church has failed to address real issues? Today's episode is entitled, Entering the Church Through Enmity. Gird your loins and stay tuned. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. The biblical doctrine of the church is so multifaceted that it could hardly be exhausted in one passage of scripture, much less one conversation, one Sunday school lesson, one sermon, or even a seminary education. Like all other doctrines in the Bible, the doctrine of the church is multifaceted as well as deeply rooted. In broadest terms, the term church refers to the whole body or number of believers that have been, are, or shall be recipients of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. Now, because it includes all believers in the past, present, and future, we can also look at the church as those saved by grace, whether they are in heaven or on earth. The point is that any person truly saved has been called and summoned from this sinful, alienated world and gathered into one new body under Christ Jesus. You may ask, can this body be numbered? I would say yes, but. Yes, but what? This body of believers can be numbered by our omnipotent, sovereign, and omniscient God, who knows all things and plans all things. You may ask a similar question. Can this body be seen? I would again say yes, but. Yes, but what? This body of believers can be seen, not infallibly by us, but by God. This broad way of looking at the church strongly implies, if not necessitates, by sound reasoning, that the church is both universal and invisible. It extends backwards and forwards in world history, biblical history, and even eternal history. How can this be known? You may not have heard this about the church before. You may have assumed that the local church you belong to, and others like it, from the time of the book of Acts forward, is all there is of the church. However, the idea of the universal church as the whole body of believers, no matter what period of time, history, or eternity, 
is based on the organic development and progressively revealed plan of God. As Dr. Samuel Renahan has stated in his book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, quote, The universal church did not begin with Christ and the apostles. It began with Adam and Eve and included Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and so many more Israelites who believed the promises of the gospel as they were made known through shadows and pictures, through typology. Their experience of salvation was the same as ours, though their knowledge of it was incomplete. They saw and greeted from afar that which they never fully understood. But their inheritance is a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, and they are our brothers and sisters among the children of God. This, dear friends, in broad strokes highlights God's progressively revealed and organically developed purpose of gathering a people unto himself with Christ as head over all. The first indication of God's purpose to gather a people unto himself is found in Genesis 3.15. No sooner did our first parents fall into sin and forfeit fellowship and life with God did he proclaim his intention to undo what sinners had done. In the midst of judgment, God declares, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In this cryptic yet sufficiently clear declaration, we understand not a common general grace, but a particular sovereign grace by which God effects the conversion of loyalty and love from self and Satan to God himself. This is the dawning of the good news. Whereas before there was cooperation with Satan to achieve autonomy from God and self-realization apart from God, from this point forward, God alone would graciously put enmity between not only Satan and her, but between Satan's spiritual descendants and her spiritual descendants. Some of Eve's spiritual descendants would be some of her immediate physical offspring, others more distant. Over time, Eve's spiritual descendants would constitute a larger and larger group. The same is true for Satan's spiritual descendants. However, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the conflict between the seed or spiritual descendants or offspring of the serpent and of the woman would come to a decisive end. There would come a day when, as Dr. John Curit says, quote, the conflict traced through the history of mankind would reach its climax in a battle between two individuals, the serpent, referred to as you, and another figure, referred to as he. Along these lines, Stuart Robinson, by way of Nick Batzig, teases out the implications of God's promise of deliverance to Adam and Eve. He states that, one, the deliverer would be a man. He is referred to as he. Two, the deliverer would be a conqueror. He would crush the serpent's head. Three, the deliverer would be more than a man since Adam and Eve were themselves conquered. Four, the deliverer would be a representative head. Five, 
the Deliverer would represent those with a new, redeemed nature, since God would put enmity between the serpent's spiritual descendants and the woman's. And only the Deliverer would put a decisive end to the spiritual battle by crushing the serpent's head. 6. The Deliverer's work on behalf of his people would be by grace alone, from beginning to end, with no human capacity to affect neither the initiation or the culmination of our deliverance. 7. The Deliverer and his delivered people are in a spiritual war against the serpent and his spiritual seed. The rest of Genesis relates the spiritual conflict of God's continued fulfillment and foreshadowing of the coming Deliverer, the Messiah. So does the rest of the Old Testament. And finally, 8. The Deliverer would suffer vicariously for his delivered people. The serpent would strike his heel. It is worth pausing to ponder, dear listener, if you discern within yourself a loyalty and love for God. You can know the true state of your own heart and soul if you have enmity with Satan or with God. To have enmity with God is to be loyal to yourself, your world, and your purposes. It doesn't matter if you go to church or pay lip service to God. If your heart and soul is only oriented to yourself, it is the same as being ultimately loyal to Satan and loving him. The work of God, however, establishes an antithesis between the two spiritual seeds, and you are either on the deliverer's side or the serpent's side. The work of God frees us from all the consequences of the fall, including the guilt and dominion of sin. The work of the serpent is to deceive us with the bait of autonomy that ultimately hides the hook of eternal destruction. To have enmity with the serpent is to see and to savor the infinite worth of God and loving him for his grace in drawing you to himself and saving you. It is to rejoice in faith that the serpent's head is crushed on your behalf by the Redeemer. Make no mistake about it. The life of the believer in this world is one of spiritual warfare. The spiritual enmity is a God-ordained grace for believers, as the people of God, to participate with Him on His side. This side of heaven, therefore, the church is militant, because the head of the church is militant. Fast forward to Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. The Apostle Paul is closing his letter to the Romans with a warning against enemies. He says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of the naive people. Everyone has learned about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Notice that God would crush Satan under their feet. This is somewhat reminiscent of Genesis 3.15 and the initiation of enmity between the spiritual offspring of the serpent and the woman. Notice also that the believer's spiritual enemy uses smooth talk and flattery 
like the serpent of old used to deceive Eve's mind. The interesting difference is that Paul refers to Satan being crushed under the feet of the Christians at Rome, while Moses in Genesis says, He will crush Satan's head. He referring to Christ, the conqueror, the deliverer. Could it be that somehow this conquering person and the people of God are so united to each other that his victory over Satan belongs to the people of God as well? If anyone knows about a particular person being so united with a particular people, it would be Paul. Before Paul was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul the Persecutor. His enmity was against God, and he persecuted the people of God. On the road to Damascus, he met the risen Christ, who asked him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Jesus identified so intimately with his people, his followers, whether men, women, or children, that to persecute them was to persecute him. Paul knew, as well as anyone has ever known, that his previous natural enmity against God and his people was overcome. Another enmity was placed inside him, whereas before he persecuted Jesus by persecuting his people. Now he was loyal and loving towards Jesus and his people, and he was made this way by no gentleman Jesus, but by the conqueror Jesus, who subdued Paul's will and converted him that day. We may add another verse contemplating the Bible passages reminiscent of Genesis 3.15. Revelation 12.17, it says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We see then that the spiritual war between the people of God and the people of the dragon that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, is cryptically revealed in Genesis, advances in all the struggles of God's people, and is apocalyptically envisioned in Revelation. What does all this talk of Genesis 3.15 and the subsequent spiritual antithesis have to do with the here and now? We are in the Christian era of redemptive history. Christ has come and has indeed conquered death and the devil. He is gathering his people on the basis of grace and the fulfillment of his new covenant promises that previous covenants in redemptive history set the stage for. All this and more is true. However, until the consummation of all things occurs by the Lord Jesus, the spiritual warfare continues. The spiritual antithesis continues in the arenas of our lives and in the battlefield which is worldwide. The nations continue to rage, but the Lord Jesus goes on conquering and to conquer. Our Lord and Savior promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The question at this time in redemptive history is this, How does a sinner come to join ranks with the body of Christ, or this church thus spoken of, which will not be prevailed against? It cannot be by merely being a physical descendant of Eve, or else everyone would be saved. It cannot be by being a physical descendant of Abraham. 
Many believe that to be in union with Christ's body, the Church, one must be in union with an institution. None of these wrong answers address the heart of our problem, which is our natural enmity with God that leaves us hopelessly and miserably under the guilt and power of sin. The correct answer can only be found in Scripture, and it is what Calvinists call effectual calling. By means of the effectual calling, and only by this gracious means, does God accomplish the building of the church. By means of the effectual calling, God and God alone gathers a people unto himself. Effectual calling points to an exclusively divine action of sovereign and particular grace. Effectual calling is that work of God's free and special grace alone, whereby the sinner, being wholly passive therein, being dead and at enmity with God, is quickened and renewed by His Word and Spirit, out of that state of sin, death, and enmity in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. It involves an enlightening of a sinner's mind and renewing of their wills such that grace is embraced freely and willingly. As Charles Wesley wrote in the fourth stanza of his hymn entitled, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It is this calling that makes us part of the congregation or assembly of the saints. For this reason the Apostle Paul designates believers as saints by virtue of this divine action of calling. Romans 1.7 says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, or simply called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in the epistle, Paul writes about the golden chain of salvation, with its various links that all fall within the purview of actions accomplished by divine grace. Romans 8, 29, and 30 contain eternal links in the chain, such as foreknowledge, which is really love before time, a subject for another episode and predestination. To those eternal links are added the exclusive works of God that occur in space and time, such as the effectual calling which invariably leads to justification and glorification. And the whole point is to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29 This calling, then, is effectual. The universal church is nothing less than God's new creation of a new humanity, a redeemed humanity in Christ the Redeemer. Again, the Apostle Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.9 Note well that God is the agent by whom the action of calling 
infallibly produces the effect of our union and fellowship with Christ. Along these lines, note the difference between the Jews and Gentiles who rejected the gospel and those who were called. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22-24, to Paul writes, For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Note well the spiritual antithesis that would stumble and reject the message of Christ, and the assessment of the same message as the power of God and the wisdom of God found in Christ by those who are called. The difference between audience members is ultimately not in the hearers, but in God who calls effectually. This is further confirmed in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14, with Trinitarian emphasis. It says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it not be lost on anyone that the Apostle here states that God is to be thanked for the believers in Thessalonica and by logical extension all believers, because He chose them for salvation to be sanctified or set apart by the Spirit, and belief in the truth to which He called them by the gospel. This is a maximally great conception of grace that any Calvinist is eager to uphold, defend, and rejoice in. It is thoroughly biblical. It is maximally humbling as well. We must recognize where we came from. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know why and we are all without excuse. We are all without resources. We are all without merit. We can't even cooperate with grace. That is our miserable plight since the fall. But the good news is that the glory that the first Adam lost, the second Adam more than simply regained, the effectual calling of the gospel ultimately results in our obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we who are deserving of everlasting destitution have by Trinitarian grace obtained a far higher glory. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 